The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there and welcome to the Numinous Podcast where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. And today we're going to talk, just you and me, about one of the greatest mysteries, which is how I wrote a book and it came into the world and I still can't quite believe it. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, the Songhees and Esquimalt First Nations, which is recently known as Victoria, BC, Canada. Um, I've had to re-record the intro to this episode like seven times now because I can't get through it without crying, so I think it's just going to have to be what it is that I'm very pleased to share that my book, The Spirited Kitchen, Recipes and Rituals for the Wheel of the Year is now available for purchase, and it's the best day of my life after having given birth to my son, basically. In this moment, I feel like I have to say that, (laughs) because obviously, um, you know, writing a book can't be as good as bringing a whole person into the world, but that me that brought a child into the world is so different from the me that's bringing a book into the world. I was so unaware (laughs) of how that was going to change me and how um, it wasn't hard. You know, it wasn't as hard as this because I wasn't as attuned to myself at the time. I could just like push through stuff. I, I could have like trauma responses and not know it and just be like a reactive human and not realize But now, after working as um, someone in trauma recovery for so many years now, I feel things and I'm aware of trauma responses and backstories. And so I know what it took for me to bring a book into the world. And I thought I would share some of the backstory because all of you have hopes and dreams too. And as you're on a healing journey, you become aware of how much shit you have to wade through to make your dreams come true. And so, um, yeah, I I thought I'd share a little bit about that. So if this is the first episode of the Numinous Podcast you've ever listened to, like, welcome, and I'm sorry, but this is like just me being a little bit undone and blubbery. I'm always living close to the waterworks as my Um, old friend Michael used to say when he was alive, I'm always very quick to cry and I have no shame in sharing emotion, but this is like uh, a little bit more gushy and vulnerable than I, than I normally am. Um, But welcome, welcome to the Carmen Spaniola experience on this day. So I'd love to read what my editor wrote uh, as the back cover copy to describe the spirited kitchen recipes and rituals for the wheel of the year and I want to name my editor Isabel McCarthy who is so wonderful I don't know how much younger than me she is maybe like 10 or 15 years or something like that but what a fabulous human and um, so patient so lovely and such a great writer and um, excellent project manager so huge thanks to her this is what she said about the book this is how she describes it Weave magic into every day with seasonal cooking and craft designed for every solstice, equinox, and halfway point in between. In the spirited kitchen, rebellious cooks nurture a relationship with the seasons and draw on ancestral roots to find magic in small details. Here, simple ingredients, apples, hazelnuts, wheat, become magical elements of cooking and ritual crafting. The result is an enchanting culinary journey through the pagan wheel of the year from, oh, that should read modern pagan wheel of the year. This is on my website, not on the book, so that's okay. I can go correct. <laughs> from the Halloween festivities of Samhain to the return of autumn at Harvest Home. As a Le Cordon Bleu trained chef, animist, and solitary witch with an intersectional feminist lens, Carmen guides us on a spiritual journey through a year of meaning making in the kitchen, in the garden, foraging in nature, and ritual crafting at the kitchen table. So how would I describe the spirited kitchen? What is it? So I have been telling people I'm writing an animistic kitchen witch cookbook, 
which to me makes sense, but I guess maybe not to everyone. So when I say animistic, I mean, um, you know, I think back in the day, in the 90s, uh, when we t people didn't really talk about being a, a witch, but you might talk about being um, sensitive, or you might talk about being an intuitive, or even psychic. Um, you might have talked about being a shaman, which we don't really use that language so much these days, right? Um, for lots of good reasons. Nowadays, people use the language of witch. I really think in 10 years, which will, not that it loses its luster, it's like a, a pretty enduring archetype, but I think what we'll get to is the root of what we're talking about, which I believe is animism. So I publicly identified as an animist before I was really talking that much about being a witch. So with animism, essentially, and I go into this in the, in the book, the belief is that there's basically two things. Number one, the ensoulment of the world, that everything has its own awareness and is, in, is as ensouled as a human. So every rock, every waterway, every animal, every dog, every tree. And the second thing is that we live in a participatory universe. And so everything is as aware of me as I am of it and has its own agency. That doesn't mean that we have the same consciousness. I think the consciousness of a fox is different from the consciousness of a broad bean, but that there is awareness and um, responsiveness between us. So when I say I'm writing an animistic cookbook, it means I'm in deep relationship with the food, with the ingredients. There isn't actually a hierarchy of consciousness either. So there's not that big of a difference for me between um, pulling carrots from the garden or harvesting a rabbit for a meal. There's a similar reverence and awareness of the, the dignity and honor and um, sacredness of all the life in um, the ecosystem, all the life in the cosmos. So the Spirited Kitchen is a cookbook because I went to cooking school. I, I, I think I'm pretty qualified, at, but it's also a book of meaning making around cooking. And it is embedded in the wheel of the year, which I have a modern spin on in this book. So it's not Wicca particularly, though there are influences and intersections with that. Um, anyway, so I wrote this cookbook as a longtime animist and a practicing witch and an intersectional feminist. I, you know, I suppose you could be a witch without being an intersectional feminist. You could be a witch without being intersectional. Let's put it that way. Um, but this is the lens that I bring an awareness of capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist patriarchy. Let me tell you, uh, when you're writing a proposal and you're like pitching agents and then you're pitching publishers, you have to have the more than human realm on your side and with like working magic in order to get like a big New York publisher to pay attention to you. And um, it worked. It worked. It worked for me. My publisher, W.W. Norton, you might recognize the name, some of you, if you were into English lit. The Norton Anthology of English Literature, uh, beloved or reviled by students in high school and university for many generations now. Uh, that's my publisher. They've published people like Joy Harjo and Roxane Gay and Audre Lorde and um, many of the luminaries in polyvagal theory like Deb Dana and Stephen Porges and Pat Ogden. So, man, am I ever grateful to uh, my, my agent and my publisher for uh, taking me on and letting me talk about capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist patri patriarchy in a cookbook um, and talking about magic. I also, I am a Le Cordon Bleu trained chef way back in the 90s, uh, 1997 to 98. I attended Le Cordon Bleu in Paris. Um, I uh, graduated top of the class. Can I tell you a little story about when you <laughs> go to cooking school, when you go to school in, in France? Um, here's something I didn't know uh, as somebody from North America. On graduation day, they call your name to come up and get your diploma 
in order of worst mark in class to best mark. <laughs> Can you imagine? Holy shit. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I, I remember I was third, um, uh, particular in my um, patisserie diploma, and that was like the best day of my life up to that point um because what a relief to sit there through everybody else getting called up what what the hell kind of brutal regime do they have in education in france anyway maybe they don't do that anymore um i also uh achieved the highest level of training and acclaim that like a, a before you become a trainer in the wine and spirit education trust that like I, I got to the highest level of like practitioner level and um graduated uh what's the highest one summa cum laude i got the next one magna cum laude uh so it's different from the sommelier guild but the same kind of thing it's learning about wine and spirits i have all that training because i worked as a rep in the wine and spirits industry. So I know my food, I know my food and wine and spirits, know how to make a cocktail. I also worked in restaurants since I was 12 years old. <laughs> Again, a thing we don't really do these days. My first dishwashing job was at a Chinese food restaurant, Yorktown in, in Duncan, at the buffet, at the smorgue, as we call it in small town Canada, the Chinese food smorgue. I was uh, washing dishes at 12 years old wasn't hired by uh, Herbie, the owner. I was hired by my aunt, my Auntie Sandy, my, my belated um, deceased Auntie Sandy, who was a waitress, and she and her best friend worked the smorgue like late at night, super busy on a Friday night and a Saturday night, and there was no dishwasher. They were waitresses expected to like put 100 seats through this restaurant and wash their own dishes. And so, um, yeah, my, my aunt called up and called the house and had me deposited there and they paid me out of their tips and and Herbie the owner who was cooking in the kitchen just saw me walk into the dish pit and get oriented um 12 year old <laughs> washing dishes anyway totally digress but I've been around food and hospitality for a long time so I think I bring a lot of different perspectives to what is good in a cookbook there are always kind of the usual questions like why did I write this particular cookbook and I'll tell you I, I took my friend Sarah Selecki's writing course many years ago it used to be called story is a state of mind I don't know what it's called now but Sarah Selecki she's a fabulous uh, writer and writing teacher um, Margaret Atwood actually teaches in Sarah's program that is like pretty impressive um, or at least as a guest teacher in Sarah's program Sarah says and maybe it's a cliche maybe it's been said a million times but i like the way she says it basically write what you want to read and she just says that in a million different ways write what you want to read and i love folklore and magic and history and the humanities and poetry and so i i read a lot of those things and i always wish they were all like put together i love reading food histories um and and i, I and i love the ritual of it and i love seasonality like one of our um like our, our best friends uh jb mckinnon and elisa smith wrote the 100 mile diet reuben likes to often say that he's like the fifth most um frequently cited character after strawberries or wheat or something like that or he's like the the third most prominent human character in the 100 mile diet so local eating seasonal eating magic food histories all of that stuff it all comes together for me in a way that makes sense in my head and every year for several years i've had this program called well first it was called um, the Yuletide Stocking Stuffer, and now we call it Yuletide Folk Fest. And basically it was like you sign up for it and every day for 12 days from winter solstice through to the New Year's Day, you get a different recording and suggested rituals and things about like all of the magic and um, rituals and f folklore associated uh, with that day of Yuletide. And for that program, it's just grown so much. I, I literally, I do so much research. I've read so many books, like, and there's this one particular author that I really, I've, I've read so many of her academic um, essays, which I'll get on like academia.edu or JSTOR. 
get all these academic papers researching this kind of stuff. And anytime I come across cool stuff for Yuletide, it often is part of a whole like, you know, um, history, like how the year would unfold in agricultural communities and days of old, that kind of thing. So I'll, I'll be researching for Yuletide, but I'll come up with all this other research for all the rest of the year. And I'll go down these rabbit holes. And so this one book, I, I read these essays by this academic called Neris Patterson. And she also wrote some books. And one of the books just sounded so good that I finally bought it. And it's called Cattle Lords and Klansmen, The Social Structure of Early Ireland in the Pre-Norman Period. And so I, this is me. This is the kind of person I'm supposed to be like researching Yuletide for this like 12 day little program that I used to charge like 20 bucks for that just kept growing and growing. And finally, I'd like spend weeks reading um, Cattle Lords and Klansmen, getting really deep into um, the, the history of old and middle Irish law. And like she did this whole book that, that was I mean, she's a feminist without saying so. So the thing about Neris Patterson is that she challenged a lot of the previous scholarship on what medieval life was like in um, Ireland, Wales, uh, Scotland, and, and England. And she just interpreted it differently. She just had a different lens as a woman academic and speaking um, Old Irish and Welsh. And so she analyzed um, Old and Middle Irish law and like reinterpreted for all these like old cis white dudes about what it actually meant. So in this book, she gets into real detail about the relative symmetry of gender roles um, of medieval Ireland. And then like has these detailed graphs of the um, kind of like the, the hierarchy of the clan structure, particularly around inheritance and fosterage. So like how important women were and how much economic power they had and how many different roles they did and and actually how um like vulnerable younger men were who were not heads of clans anyway so i read cattle lords and clansmen and i'm basically like i want everybody to know this shit. <laughs> i don't know why i just found it so fascinating and was like she would talk about all these different seasons and what was happening in um, the culture and, and families and with trade and cattle raiding and all that stuff. Meanwhile, I'm also taking courses with um, uh, Michael Newton, right? You might have remembered him from a uh, past episode uh, where we talked about um, Scottish... I can't actually remember what I talked about with Michael on the podcast, but anyway, Michael has a folk school for... Um, uh, the, the, the Scots called, uh, the hidden And so all these things are like in my head and every time I'm hearing the history, I'm always wondering what they ate and what they drank and who was doing that work. And did they tan the heights and what was the process like? How did they refrigerate? How did they know how to make creme patissiere? How did they, like, I just can't stop thinking about those scenes. And then I came across F. Marion McNeil. And F. Marion McNeil is another like feminist who wouldn't say so, but she was a suffragist. She would call herself a suffragist and a peace activist. And she was from the Highlands of Scotland. Well, she was actually from the islands. She's from Orkney, um, went to school at Edinburgh. Um, and she did the Scottish National Dictionary. And um, she wrote what she called the Silver Bow. And it was based off of Fraser's great work, The Golden Bough, which was um, sort of anthropology and, and spiritual traditions of Europe. She did it specifically for Scotland. And she has multiple books, which I have many of, and one of them is called The Scots Kitchen. And the introduction of The Scots Kitchen is all about the old alliance, A-U-L-D alliance between Scotland and France and how much cultural sharing and exchange um, occurred between Scotland and France before the, the great Jacobite rebellion, uh, which of course they lost, the, the Battle of Culloden, and how what we now think of as like pretty shitty Scottish, sorry to all the Scots, but like the rest of the world, 
the reputation of Scottish cooking is not like awesome. However, that is because of the um, displacement and oppression that the British imposed on the Scottish um, to shame them for their uprising. Um, and so prior to the uh, Jacobite rebellion that was defeated by the, the, the British, the Scots and the French both had excellent reputations for food, feasting, culinary prowess, and um, well, and especially hospitality. The Highlanders, well known and, and well documented, not only by F. Mary McNeil, but by others, of um, how they expressed hospitality and generosity, not dissimilar from um, here as a settler on the West Coast um, with uh, the indigenous nations, I'm thinking of the Kwakwakwa, who are just up island from me, not dissimilar to, from the potlatch tradition, the great giveaway that would happen where, you know, wealth was accumulated in order to give it away at an annual feast, um, or n not that the potlatch happened annually, but at a special feast. The, the Highlanders had the same kind of thing, and I think that, well, I mean, I've taken a whole course with Michael Newton on, uh, and he has a whole book, another one, um, that I, I've also read on why the indigenous folks and the first Scottish settlers got along so well. Um, and uh, anywho, I digress. See, this is what happens. So, so that's why I wrote The Spirited Kitchen because I have all these diverse interests and I wanted to bring them all together in one place because that's the book that I wish that I had. I wish I had all of this history and lore and magic and um, politics and um, ancestral reverence and um, culinary history, all of that together in one place. So it's, I, this is a good time to read uh, a sample or two. So this is just the first page of The Spirited Kitchen from the introduction. I didn't grow up in a spiritual household. Nobody in my family ever uttered the word spirit. In my early childhood, I lived with my great-grandmother, Granny, and my grandmother, Isabel, my mother, and her three younger sisters. We lived in a three-bedroom, one-bath house. So count how many people I just mentioned there. Granny, Isabel, my mom, her three sisters, and me in three bedrooms. And we, yeah, very often me squished between my mom and one of my aunties <laughs> to go to bed. One bathroom. One bathroom, my friends. <laughs> okay, back to the book. Um, we lived in a three-bedroom, one-bath house with a scary, dusty food cellar and Isabel's beauty salon in the converted garage. When I was about eight years old, Granny helped me draw our family tree. She told me about my Scottish great-great-grandmother, Bella Mackenzie Graham, who had the second sight and saw ghosts walk the stony halls of the old estate she'd worked in as a young seamstress near her village of Delny. She told me about my great-great-grandfather, John Graham, and his uncanny way with his highland ponies, that he was what we'd now describe as a horse whisperer. She said he knew what they were thinking and that he could speak with them like friends. And that's it. That's all I've got for passed down family lore and traditions. Sure, there are other stories, but they're the not fully articulated ones. The deep sighs and slow head shakes, eyes quickly wiped and bodies turning to tasking after a few low words about the drought times, the young ones who died early, the death of beloved horses. Almost everything about my ancestral inheritance I've had to intuit, patched together with research and genetically decode. Nonetheless, my ability to track down clues about my heritage is a privilege and one that I feel a responsibility to explore. Even if you haven't heard family lore of the supernatural, many of us have heard stories about relatives who had a certain kind of inexplicable luck. There might be a story about this auntie who grew giant vegetables or that grandfather who was an unlikely survivor in wartime. Perhaps they had a healing way with touch. And very often, these people also have a large inner world, though they mostly keep it to themselves. As someone who was always described as an imaginative child, I know this feeling. 
From a young age, I had a sense of the holographic nature of the universe, that there was another world that paralleled and often supported ours. I masked this sense pretty well in my teen years. I knew that talking to animals, listening to trees, and petitioning stars for help was not what the cool kids did. My ability to attune to the messages and magic of life became more subterranean and covert as I grew up. As soon as I stepped out on my own, though, I did what many people who don't know their witches do. I visited my local bookstore and bought all the books on tarot, crystals, and shamanism. I took loads of courses and workshops, but something always seemed a bit graspy, a bit shallow. I was constantly seeking, never feeling settled. And then, as is foretold by pretty much every mythic journey tale there is, I had my long, dark night of the soul. It led me to the lifeline that would guide me out of the existential dark, a scrawny roadside vegetable garden. <sighs> That's page one. Um, I also want to read this mini essay. It's, a, it's another one pager. It's called A Word on Witchcraft. And this sort of, I, I think, is going to help locate, um, again, where, why I wrote this book and where I'm speaking from. Although I'd been privately practicing witchcraft for a number of years, it wasn't until 2014 when I read Sylvia Federici's indomitable book, Caliban and the Witch, Women, the Body, and Primitive Accumulation, that I finally admitted publicly, I'm a witch. Previously, I'd taught workshops about intuition that addressed the wound of social scorn that often accompanies those who are intuitive, sensitive, and empathetic. I had studied the history of heresy in the burning times, and I read biographies of figures and cultures that were victims of the Holy Inquisition, such as Joan of Arc and the Qatars. But it was Federici's work that transformed my life and my worldview as it pertains to witchcraft. Federici details how women's history has not been a linear progression from having fewer to more rights as we've been taught. Rather, we've experienced a fairly recent and rapid loss of rights and station, along with the naturalization of oppressive gender and class hierarchies that did not always exist. Okay, sidebar, see, this is why I also love Nearest Patterson. It's like, we actually used to have a lot of station and power. Anyway, okay, back to a word on witchcraft. Through the privatization of the commons, the enslavement and genocide of black and indigenous peoples, the vilification of queer folk, Jews, Romani, and other resistors, and the subjugation of women in their bodies. Society was transitioned from collectivism to feudalism to capitalism in just a few hundred years. People who resisted the loss of rights and access were branded witches. One method of control over the masses was the terror campaign of the Holy Inquisition, the witch hunt that killed an estimated 50 million people mostly women, in Europe. The subjugation of women was key to this economic transition because the means of subsistence, production of food, and transmission of intergenerational knowledge and cooperation, in other words, most forms of social power, were fundamentally in their hands. As the noted boar and patriarchy hype man Francis Bacon once said, magic kills industry. The notion of witchcraft was an invention of the 15th century as a negative rebrand of millennia-old folk practice, which served to protect powerful, rich white people, mostly men, from the outrage of the people they enslaved and stole from. Eventually, in the 19th century, to create a more disciplined workforce and to diffuse social protest, Federici writes, all forms of collective sociality and sexuality including sports, games, dances, ale wakes, festivals, and other group rituals that had been a source of bonding and solidarity among workers were banned. All that to say, if resisting oppression, reclaiming my body as my own, praying to my ancestor tree, fighting for collective liberation, and organizing around a culture of care and dignity 
makes me a witch, my friend, I am that. Whether you identify that way or not, publicly or not, is your own business. I say, let's just be in practice together. Let us create sanctuary together and let us not allow anyone to shame us, our identities, our bodies, or our cultures ever again. Okay, so that's like the most wordy and um, heady and uh, didactic as I get in the book. And my publishers were like very open to having this like mini sidebar essay um, because it's really the core of the book. It's absolutely the essence of the book is helping people um, and empowering people to remember that uh, conviviality, sociality, sharing of food, these are the social bonds that help us redistribute power. Collectivism is how we even out the power imbalances in our society. And the way we come together is over food and ritual. And so I'm, anyway, that's all I want to say about that. I think for now you can buy the book and see it. It's like one page. The rest of it is like rituals and recipes if that's what you're there for. But um, yeah, that was a really important uh, essay for me and I was glad that they, they kept it. As I said, though, it is a cookbook. It has all my go-to recipes in one place. That was like another thing. I, I wrote it because I have certain things that I like cook all the time every day or that I like really love to um, save for special occasions when I'm hosting for workshops or that sort of thing. And they're like literally on post-its and, um, you know, the back of like, I don't know, like old printer paper, or like the backside, it's like all written down. <laughs> stuff or and so I just needed to like collate all these things together but also my rituals because I do have a grimoire little journal with all my rituals in it um but there's certain ones that I really do love to do at different times of the year it would just be nice to have those particular like prayers and reminders and things in that order so now I do want to share a little bit about the personal process. I know that there are lots of people who would like to publish a book or they um, would like to, yeah, just do something that um, brings their work forward in a more visible way and um, might be looking at what I've done and be like, oh man, I'd like to do that. Or um, how did you do that? Or, you know, I wonder what that was like. And I just want to say it was messy. So here's a little inside scoop into the um, kind of personal practices that, that I had to do in order to bring forth this body of work. So first of all, uh, I needed to set up a committee of care, which comes from my Quaker practice. Um, in the Quaker way, we would have uh, committees, clearness committees or committees of care when a person is needing some support. And so usually there's like somebody that the person knows, there might be somebody else they don't know as well, but maybe has some um, parallel experience or relevant experience to what they're going through. Then there'll be like a seasoned Quaker. Um, so there's usually, yeah, like three, there could be more, but um, and essentially your committee of care just listens and asks you questions. And so they're not going to like give advice. They're just going to hold space. And I knew that, um, I would feel particularly vulnerable bringing forward a body of work, something really important to me, especially talking about family stuff since I'm estranged from my mother and, um, the mother wound, man, it'll keep you small and it will keep you um, self-conscious and questioning yourself and feeling like you shouldn't stick your neck out, you know, don't be a tall poppy. And um, it'll also make you feel really lonely and uh, really griefful. You know, anytime something good happens to me, I feel wistful and sad that I, I can't share it with my mother. And so I set up a committee of care and was like, I just feel like I'm going to have my shit come up around um, unworthiness and not feeling chosen and not feeling like my work is ever good enough and um, that, 
no matter what I do, I'm not going to get the love that I really want. And I won't be able to enjoy anything fully because I have this aching wound, this, this gap. And even though I'm like, I've, I've done a lot of work on it and I'm like very well supported, I just knew that if I was going to do something that, that could potentially be a culmination of my dreams and a bunch of hard work and effort and like putting me out into the world um, for critique <laughs> that it was going to bring up my mother wound. So I had three friends that very generously met with me and, and they would meet monthly and I would be like, you know, I don't even know why I need this. I don't, I don't think we need to meet. I don't want to be too busy. You know, you guys are busy. They'd be like, no, no, let's just get together. And I'd start be the check-in. How are you doing? And I'd be like, I'm good. I'm feeling, I don't know. And then I would just like start crying and blubbering. And um, I did that for months. So big thanks to them, <laughs> to my committee of care, um, for sticking through that with me because I did need to just sort of... Um, discharge the stress of, of bringing forth a, a big piece of work. The other thing I did was uh, I knew that my inner critic would stymie progress uh, when it came to writing my proposal and getting my pitch out there. And so I hired a coach. I hired a coach that was an old friend who has also written a book and been an entrepreneur. So I had the magical <laughs> unicorn um, of a coach and thank you Lauren Bacon for being there for me and she did the same thing where it was like okay kind of more like accountability based and also just like can we just be practical and realistic about this and stop being such a drama queen here are the steps you need to go through and you're doing just fine and that kind of thing so Lauren got me through the um, one foot in, free other, in front of the other just do the thing process of putting my book proposal together and then I knew I needed a really good first reader because I wanted to bring forward some fairly like contentious issues about intersectional feminism, particularly around um, gender, um, ableism, disability, uh, uh, ancestral uh, reverence as a white bodied person. And so I hired somebody who um, there's a little bit of consulting, but mostly teaching. And she was my teacher and colleague. And um, I really want to thank Sophie Macklin for being my, my first reader. So I hired her to look at the manuscript and basically be like, it sounds like it's going to be really good. And then you say this shitty thing. <laughs> and me being like, oh, no, that's not what I meant. Or like, that was a really bad copy and paste. I Let me fix that. So Sophie was able to be like, it's really good, except these parts where you're going to totally offend people, because what the hell are you even talking about? And I was like, yeah, what was I talking about there? You know, when you've got 80,000 to 100,000 words, and then you like try to pull it together, it, the copy and pasting can, you, things can get very, anyway, I sent her a draft that was, when I look at it now, I'm so cringy. But anyway, um, she helped me get that uh, ship shape. And um, then I worked with a mentor. I, I worked with my mentor, Cindy Brannon, who wrote um, Keeping Her Keys and Entering Hecate's Garden. So again, somebody who's like older, wiser, more experienced has done the thing that I wanted to do. And I worked with her specifically on visibility issues and like standing behind my work. And I shared with her that like Hestia had really been pressing on me for a while. And I was trying to figure out like, how is, what does she have to do? Like, what am I missing here? Why does she keep coming to me? And Cindy um, really was such a, a profound inspiration and, and mentor and guide and teacher to help me step into sovereignty and just like take my place at the head of my own table. So that felt great. And then I took Roxanne Gay's writing class on masterwork, uh, masterclass and like watched it again and again. And <laughs> it's just so good. Everybody. So, you know, you read the books of, of, of a master of somebody who's just like, absolutely excellent at what they do and that makes you feel terrible at what you do plus I have a lot of friends who are like actual real writers like J.B. McKinnon is uh, one of Canada's best-selling non-fiction writers um he, like literally wrote the book The 100 Mile Diet uh 
along with Elisa. And my friend Sarah Selecki, you know, she wrote Radiant Shimmering Light. I, my friend Monique Gray-Smith, she's writing the youth adaptation of Braiding Sweetgrass with Robin Wall Kimmerer. Like, I have real writers in my life, so to be like, I'm going to write a book sounds fake, <laughs> just like weird. So I took courses just to refine my work. And um, essentially all of Masterclass, I don't know if I should do this, but I'm just going to distill it down to the three post-its that I had up on my computer, which are still there to this day. The first thing that Roxane Gay is talking about is like, go back again and again over your opening lines, opening paragraphs, opening chapters. And oh my goodness, my editor helped me, but oh, opening lines, opening paragraphs, opening chapters, that's like really hard to put all your inspiration and like focus and, you know, the lead right there. That's what I did. Then the next post-it says, is this holding my interest? Does this make sense? And a lot of the times my editor had to be like, so this is really good. It's just that it seems a little off topic. And I'm like, but I read a whole book on medieval Irish cattle herding. What do you mean that shouldn't be in my cookbook? Anyway, so there was a lot that like did not hold interest, very often did not make sense as to why it was there. And so my editor, Isabel, cut it. <laughs> so instead of 100,000 words, we have like 60,000 words. I was contracted for 44,000, so it's nice of them to have given me so much. Then the last post-it I have from Roxanne Gay on my computer is, have I said everything I want to say? And honestly, no, I haven't, because I had to <laughs> cut all those things. But, um, you know, other, other, maybe other books, maybe other contexts, you know. It, but everything that I want to say for The Spirited Kitchen, I, th I think is in there now, and it's good. And then I have another thing on my wall that I want to share with you. It's an it's a excerpt from an interview with Ira Glass. And this is the, the crux of the whole thing about bringing forth your body of work and laying it out there for, for people to see. Is I kept, and I would cry to my committee of care, my three friends, over and over again about how I was afraid I was going to have an ugly baby. Like my book baby was going to be ugly. And there were so many parts of it that were like outside of my control, like the design and the cover and um, and then also like how many words I got and, and then also just that my words wouldn't be very good or interesting. And they just kept saying, we will love your baby even if you have an ugly baby, which was very nice to hear, but also you're not gonna have an ugly baby. But I, kept, I just kept having this like drive, this fear that I was gonna have an ugly baby, ugly book baby. Of course, I, anyway. And then I remembered this quote from Ira Glass and I like scoured the internet, it wasn't hard to find. Um, and I printed it off and I put it on my wall. And this has been what has driven me and given me the courage to put myself out there in this way. So here's Ira Glass. Nobody tells this to people who are beginners. I wish someone told me. All of us who do creative work, we get into it because we have good taste. But there is a gap. For the first couple years you make stuff and it's just not that good. It's trying to be good, it has potential, but it's not. But your taste, that thing that got you into the game is still killer. And your taste is why your work disappoints you. A lot of people never get past this phase, they quit. Most people I know who do interesting creative work went through years of this. We know our work doesn't have this special thing that we want it to have. We all go through this. And if you're just starting out or you're still in this phase, you've got to know it's normal. And the most important thing you can do is a lot of work. Put yourself on a deadline so that every week you will finish one story. It is only by going through a volume of work that you will begin to close that gap and your work will be as good as your ambitions. And I took longer to figure out how to do this than anyone I've ever met. It's going to take a while. It's normal to take a while. You just got to fight your way through. So thank you, Ira Glass, <laughs> because that's what it was for me. It's the gap between my work and my ambition. I haven't quite, I haven't closed the gap entirely, but it made me realize, well, this is just 
one piece in the volume of work. Hopefully this is just one book and the beginning of many. And hopefully one day my work will be as good as my ambition. But for now, this is pretty good. <laughs> it's, it's pretty good. Hello there. Normally I don't do this sort of thing. However, I love cooking and I happen to be a feminist. And so if you are a feminist or an epicure out there looking for a really great new cookbook, uh, check out The Spirited Kitchen, Recipes and Rituals for the Wheel of the Year. Uh, it's by Carmen Spaniola and it's coming out in the fall of 2022 from Norton. And I'm looking forward to checking out this book because uh, a beautiful cookbook is such a, an incredible gift. I love the pictures of the food and the great recipes. And anyway, let me not bore you with my adoration of cookbooks, but check it out. The Spirited Kitchen, Recipes and Rituals for the Wheel of the Year. And hopefully you'll cook something amazing that you can share on Insta. Uh, my friends. That was Roxanne Gay. So, three things. My name has been in her mind. It has, secondly, passed through her lips, pronounced properly. Third, she knows about my book, The Spirited Kitchen, Recipes and Rituals for the Wheel of the Year, and she said you should buy it and gift it. And now my life is complete. I just thought I'd share that little uh, sidebar with you. That was the other best day of my life. I want to leave you with one more short reading from the book that's going to get us back to the food, back to kind of the, the vibe, the feel of what you'll get when you buy The Spirited Kitchen, if you choose to. This is from the introduction still. It's a subsection called Kitchen Magic as spiritual practice. To understand the multidimensional nature of our kitchen magic, it can be useful to think of life as occurring on four levels, from material to pure potential. For this, I'll paraphrase John Michael Greer, former archdruid of the ancient order of druids in America, expert on ceremonial magic, and someone from whom I've learned a tremendous amount. Consider a simple ingredient like a hazelnut, on the physical level, the hazelnut is small and firm in your fingers. Toasted, it has a mellow, almost sweet, nutty flavor and leaves a mildly, mildly oily residue that pleasantly lingers in your mouth. But the hazelnut also exists on an etheric level, a complex of forces that hold the hazelnut together and even emanate from it. I'm not talking about fats and proteins here. I'm talking about life force energies. Western cultures don't speak much of etheric energies. The sad irony is that our best understanding of etheric energies comes to us through a blockbuster movie slash mega merch franchise. May the Force Be With You is a bit like a culturally appropriated counterpart to the Chinese concept of qi and the Indian concept of prana. Each of these concepts are pointing at a similar thing, the idea that everything is permeated with a vital principle a life force, an etheric energy. In magic, the hazelnut also exists on the astral level. The astral level is related to resonances set in motion by the sun, moon, and planets of our solar system. In natural magic, hazelnuts flow on a metaphorical energy current with mercury, specifically in Virgo which is a particularly exalted combination. This astrological recipe means that hazelnuts are resonant with super effective communication. And then there's the mental level of hazelnuts, which is more about the abstract concept of them. This would include all the myth and lore about hazelnuts as food from a tree of wisdom, all the divination done with hazelnuts over the centuries, and everything you know about them and associate with them. So when we speak about the spirit of hazelnut, we're grasping all of these levels at once. Spirit is the maximum potential, encompassing all of these dimensions simultaneously. Long after the physical dimension of the hazelnut is no longer perceptible, after it has moved through and out of your body, 
the nutrients it has provided you remain in the glow of your skin, the strength of your nails, and the luster of your hair. The memories of it are carried forward and added to hazelnut lore. The resonances still exist and can be revived as soon as you catch the scent of hazelnut syrup in a coffee shop. The aroma ignites a cellular memory that inspires mindfulness and a moment of spiritual resonance. This modern druidic explanation of the resonances between all things is helpful to keep in mind as you use this book. Though sometimes I use the word symbol as a convenient term, what I actually believe is that everything carries a multidimensional resonance through which the magic flows. When we maintain awareness of the multidimensional nature of our ingredients and the significance of how and when we employ them, then each recipe we make is actually a ritual in itself. We are blending energies, conjuring something new and specific, taking that into our body and integrating it into our being. We become the talisman. We are the magic. So my friends, I really hope you will go to my website and pre-order the book. Um, check out the book bonuses because when you go to my website, you'll see what you can get when you pre-order. Even if you just pre-order one thing, one copy, you will get an awesome little bonus. So go to my website, carmenspaniola.com to check it out. And then if you buy two, you get a little more, three, a little more. And if you, especially if you do a bulk purchase, like if you buy 10 or more copies at one time, I want to hear from you. Like if you have a cookbook club or a, just a regular book club or a witch book club, um, and you place a single order of 10 or more copies, I will set up a visit over Zoom. I will come to your book club virtually. I will hang with your group. I'll be happy to spend an hour. So if that's the thing you want to do, you'll put it into the um, uh, purchase form. Or if you're like, we're all purchasing separately, but I'm going to organize and, you know, we're going to um, have a ticketed event or something like that. You, you're like, I've got a group and we want you to come and um, read a section of the book and answer questions and we want to hang with you, um, email me or my team at admin at carmenspaniola.com because I want to thank you, my friend. <laughs> and, and it's true that purchasing earlier is better than later because, well, for a couple of reasons. Number one, if you pre-order on Amazon, it's um, 10 bucks off if you order um, before October 18th, when the book will actually ship. Um, but also, if you order earlier in the year, it helps my publisher kind of track how much they should print. So, um, of course, we want them to print lots. That would be great. <laughs> so, yeah, that's all I have to say about that. Basically, um, thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of this journey. If you choose to pre-order the book, thank you. And... Yeah, I hope you like it. I really, really do. I really hope you like what I made. And um, yeah, you can just go to my website to check it out. CarmenSpaniola.com C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A Until next time, take care. <laughs>